0: All right, let's get into the book of Revelation. Uh, we're in chapter 17, and I'm calling this A Woman Rides the Beast. I think you'll see why. Let's just dive right in. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. This is probably one of the most confusing chapters in the entire Bible. What happens is people will read this and just go, what? That doesn't make any sense. Let me keep reading. But what I've learned is if you just step back and look at it piece by piece by piece, it's not as confusing as you might think. So what I'm going to do is do exactly that. We're going to look at this woman piece by piece by piece. And we will understand not everything, but a lot about what's going on here. So what I've come up with is this little table, and I've learned that there's 12 descriptions of this lady, 12 descriptors. And so we'll look at them one by one, look at what they mean, and then you'll have an overall picture. We're going to start with one that maybe if you made this list, you wouldn't have put on the list because it's not as significant as the others. But if this was all we had, we'd still have information. He said, let me show you the judgment of the great harlot. So the first thing we know about this woman is she's going to be judged. So what can we learn from that? Well, the first thing we can learn from that, she's wicked. So if we didn't have any of the rest of this story, we'd know she's wicked. We'd also know she's significant. How do you get that from the word judgment, Steve? Well, why else would she be mentioned in the Bible? Why would her judgment be mentioned? So significant may be famous. Otherwise, she wouldn't be mentioned. She's wicked. She's significant. She's famous. And so, of course, that's the interpretation. She's wicked. But let's move on. Next thing. Second descriptor, verse 1. She's called the great harlot. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, this is the first time you're reading the Bible and you see this woman called the harlot. I mean, we don't even use that word anymore, harlot. This should probably have been translated for modern English as prostitute. Or even whore. Either of those words could have worked. So we don't like to use that word, hardly. We can use that because it's comfortable in polite society. Whore, you don't want to hear from the pulpit too often. It just doesn't work. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what they're trying to tell us. They're not trying to tell us she's in polite society. This is a bad, yucky woman. And the word is appropriate. We should know that. But harlotry... Um, prostitution whoredoms whatever word you want to use has a couple of meanings in the Bible there's the literal meaning and then there's the metaphor and as we go through the description of this woman we're going to see that both apply harlotry is a metaphor for false religion in the Bible for for idolatry and for cheating on God that would be a good way to look at it so so God's the husband his people are supposed to be the chaste bride But when we don't walk with God, we decide to follow another religion or another god. In fact, the ancients went against many gods, went for many gods. They had idols for everything. And so it was like they were prostituting themselves, not just once, but over and over and over again. That's God's imagery when his people cheat on him. As it says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods. I'm a jealous god. You shall have no other spouses. I'm a jealous spouse. This uh, metaphor that we're going to see in Revelation occurs throughout the Bible. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 23. It shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. That was an ancient city. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So this city of Tyre pushing false religion, doing evil things. And God refers to her as going back to her hire. The oldest profession. Selling herself to fornication. In Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. There's your metaphor explained. The land children of Israel, have committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. When we abandon God, God considers that spiritual fornication. And in this instance, it was Israel. In the previous instance, it was Tyre. In the book of Revelation, we're going to find it's the entire world. This verbiage in Isaiah and Hosea helps us understand Revelation. But there's a chapter in the book of Nahum, which is one of the minor prophets nobody ever in fact, if I say, what's Nahum about? You would know. Nobody knows. They just skip over poor Nahum. Nahum set the groundwork for this chapter in Revelation, believe it or not. I'm going to read to you six verses. And when you see on the screen the six verses, you'll see some portions underlined. The underlined portions have a direct parallel to Revelation. It's almost like you don't know which one they're talking about. Check it out. Woe to the bloody city. It's full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge, bright sword, glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you and make you a spectacle. All of those underlines are a direct reference to what we see of Mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. If I were to just put out those words, you wouldn't know which one I was talking about. Go home, read 17 and 18, both chapters, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. This was Nineveh. Nineveh was the head of the Assyrian Empire. They were the world power of their day, and they were a wicked, vicious people, and everybody hated them. They were like the Nazis of their day. They weren't just conquerors. They were vicious. They like flayed people alive. They came up with a torture process to impale people to make them stay alive for days while they were impaled. They would heap mountains of skulls, heads, fresh heads, at their entranceway of cities and stuff to show their superiority. They put heads on spikes. They were just wicked, vicious people. They were the head of a wicked empire, And God says that they were like harlots. Now, first descriptor, she's judged. Second descriptor, she's the great harlot. Third descriptor, she sits on many waters. This is uh, the third descriptor, but it's still in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 17. Oftentimes, when people try to understand the scripture, they'll look at a piece and say, well, what's that mean? She sits on many waters. And they'll start analyzing in their own mind what they think that could possibly mean. Don't do that. Because if you're just trying to come up with something in your own head, it's just in your own head. That doesn't necessarily make it valid. There's a good chance it won't be valid. Go back to the scripture. If the scripture answers your question, you know what it means. If the scripture doesn't answer your question, just put a little check mark by it. Data pending. In this case, we know exactly what the many waters represent. In verse 15 it says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we've got this harlot sitting on many waters. Well, what does that mean? Well, the many waters refer to various languages, cultures, peoples, and nations. Her influence... Spans many, many, many nations. That's what we're learning about this wicked woman. So even though the harlot is herself nasty, she's influenced many other nations and they've become nasty too. The next couple of indicators, the um, descriptors, talk about the extent of her influence. So the fourth one is in verse 2. It says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Well, when we read the Bible, we always think of 2,000 years ago. I wanted to put it in modern visual. When it says the kings of the earth, we don't have kings for the most part today. We have presidents and ambassadors and prime ministers. That's the idea. Now, I'm not saying these are the ones, though they may be. Hasn't happened yet. Could happen tomorrow. I don't know where they're going to be. But don't get into your mind this idea ...of ancient Israel, ancient Rome, ancient Babylon... ...get your mind wrapped around what's going on today... ...because this is tomorrow's news... ...not yesterday's news. And for all we know... ...many of these kings with whom she commits fornication... ...live today. They haven't gotten into their role yet from Revelation 17... ...but that could happen soon. Turn on the news tomorrow. Who knows what we'll see. Now, so this woman... She's not just being judged for being wicked. She's being judged for spreading her wickedness to other leaders. She's a leader. She influences all these countries. And she influences other leaders. And I keep referring to her as she because that's what Revelation refers to her. But that's no lady. And as we're going to read, it's not even a person. It's actually a political system that's being talked about here. But when it says, other kings are being influenced by her, it brought to my mind a passage of scripture in Romans. Let me read it to you, and then I'll tell you why it came to my mind. It says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So in Romans, it's talking about fornication and idolatry, which is exactly what Mystery Babylon's all about. It said, when people know that fornication is wrong and idolatry is wrong, they not only practice it themselves, but they give hearty approval to others who practice it. They egg it on, they endorse it, they try to spread it. We've got a taste of that going on in our culture right now. It was only a handful of years ago that people were ashamed to get divorced and then remarried. It was a shame a literal shame. You would be embarrassed to sell somebody you were divorced and remarried. My, how times have changed. Now, not all divorce and remarriage is wrong, but most of it is. And it's part of our culture now, and we don't even bat an eye. And then just a few years ago, um, homosexuals were in the closet. What that means is they didn't want anybody to know they were gay. They weren't too embarrassed, and they would have been made fun of and persecuted. Then every once in a while, somebody would come out of the closet, which means they'd go public ...and let everybody know that they were gay. That was not just a few years ago. And then they started asking for equal rights... ...and now the Supreme Court has demanded... ...that every state recognize two same-sex people... ...as a legitimate marriage. They not only practice such things... ...but give hearty approval to those who practice them. What the Bible teaches, we see. We're not seeing it in chapter 17... But we're seeing the beginning of it. What we're seeing right now is very likely the beginning of what I'm reading to you about in chapter 17. Fifth descriptor in verse 2 The inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with her, with the wine of her fornication. So she was wicked, she influenced the kings, and she influenced the regular people too. Her influence is epidemic. It's pandemic. It's worldwide. Sixth descriptor, verse 3. She's sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, we're talking about the woman. That's what this lesson is about. Next week, we'll talk about the beast she's sitting on. I can tell you now, though, that this concept ...of her sitting on a beast. The beast, by the way, references about 17 different nations. We'll see that next week or the week after. But she's sitting on the beast. What's it mean when you see somebody sitting on a beast? Somebody's riding a horse. What does that mean? They're in charge. They're directing the horse. The horse is under their control. So this woman is riding the beast. We thought the beast was the worst of the worst... The woman's worse than the beast. She's controlling the beast. Wow! I told you the beast was the uh, Antichrist Empire just a few weeks ago. She's in control of the Antichrist Empire. Whoa! Whoever this woman is, she's amazing. Now we'll find out in the coming weeks that the Antichrist Empire will turn on her and destroy her. But for now, she's in charge. She's holding the reins. Seventh descriptor, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Kind of pretty. Who wouldn't want to have gold and pearls and precious stones and and purple and scarlet robes, which often stood for for royalty? Sounds nice. What's wrong with that, Steve? Well... The attire she is wearing is the type of attire a prostitute would wear to attract attention. So not only is she displaying her wealth, she's displaying her wares. That's the idea. It's kind of like, um, I've been to Chicago, I've been to LA, I've been to New York, and I've even driven up and down Oracle and Miracle Mile. You can usually tell a prostitute just by driving by. She's not dressed like everybody else. She's advertising her profession, hoping somebody will stop. That's what this woman is doing. She's attired as a harlot. Also, she's not just any old harlot, because most of the harlots I've driven by, not too attractive if you ask me. This woman is rich. She's got gold and pearls and precious stones. She's a classy harlot. She's successful. So she's bragging about how good she is. She's prosperous. And she's pretentious. People will often dress up like this because they look good and they know it. So, three P words. She's a prostitute, she's prosperous, and she's pretentious. That's what's going on with the description of her clothing. And looking at this description and what I told you about it helps us understand a misunderstood passage of Scripture, one that's kind of controversial that people argue about all the time. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is what it says. I also want the women to be modest and sensible about their clothes and to dress properly, not with fancy hairstyles or gold ornaments or pearls or expensive dresses, but with good deeds, as is proper for women who claim to be religious. Now, this passage is about a couple of things. The first thing it's about is, even though he doesn't use the words here, Paul in 1 Timothy is saying, a Christian woman shouldn't be dressed in like a prostitute. You should be able to tell the difference. This is how they dressed. So don't you dress that way. And you know, sometimes it still goes on today. This passage is still valid. How many, don't raise your hands. How many of you can think of somebody who's gone to church... ...claims to be a woman of God... ...but you wouldn't want her around your husband... ...the way she's dressed? Or guys, you feel like you need to wear horse blinders... ...when she's in the room. It's just not right. So this passage in Timothy is about that. It's about dressing inappropriately... ...either as a woman of the night... ...or as an immodest person. And it's not, not appropriate. So I asked Jen... Um, to do some research online. And I did some research online. And I wanted to find a good article on modesty. I've never written one. I'm sure somebody out there wrote one. And so we we zeroed in on one. That day I wore yoga pants. Five myths about modesty, written by Felicia Delta. It's available in the lobby. Ladies, I'd encourage you to get one. Guys, you can get one too. Modesty in Dress is usually a female issue in our culture, but not always, not exclusively. But uh, this is a well-written article. Um, Ladies, maybe you think you don't have a problem with modesty. Get the article anyway, for one of two reasons. You do, and you don't know it. Or you don't, but there might be somebody else who needs the article, and you can share it with them. So I'd highly encourage you to get the article. All right. Let's see if we can move on. ...to our eighth descriptor... ...verse four. Having in her hand... ...a golden cup... ...full of the abominations... ...and the filthiness of her fornication. Again, why a golden cup? Romans had glass. Romans had bronze. Romans had silver. Hey, if you were really a wealthy family... ...you had silver cups. But if you had gold... ...you were the upper crust of the upper crust. You were royalty... ...or next best thing. And when people put out their gold cups. It was to show off. It was to be pretentious. It was to brag. And this cup, the one in her hand, exemplifies the disgusting nature of this so-called woman. The golden cup isn't full of wine. It's full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Ew, that's just disgusting. That's probably one of the grossest sentences in the whole Bible. I don't even want to dwell on it. But when it says she has a cup, my mind immediately went to ancient Rome and feasts. Because that was, you know, she's got a cup of wine. They had wine feasts all the time. And so, what I want to do is uh, put on my archaeology hat. This is my archaeology hat. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) Y'all know I love archaeology. Well, not archaeology. I don't like archaeology. I like biblical archaeology. You know, I don't really care about the archaeology of ancient China. I don't even care about archaeology of the United States. I like biblical archaeology. Because to me, biblical archaeology, you know, I used to go to the movie, and and you watch these movies in in two dimension, and and they're good. Then they came out with high def, much better. Now I always go to the screens that have the high def. Then they came out with this new 3D in high def. And that's like, whoa, that's amazing. You see the same story, but you just get more detail. That's what I like about biblical archaeology. It's like reading the Bible in high def. I get it better. So some of the things archaeologists and sociologists have learned about ancient Rome can help us understand this passage a little better. So I'm going to read to you from some research I did on these wine feasts that this woman is depicting. And I quote, A decadent meal required an elaborate table service comprising numerous vessels and utensils that were designed to serve both functional and decorative purposes the most ostentatious tableware was made of costly materials such as silver, gold, bronze, or semi-precious stone. Roman literary sources describe elite private banquets as a kind of feast for the senses, during which the host strove to impress his guests with extravagant fare, luxurious tableware, and diverse forms of entertainment. So I was at an archaeological site in Turkey. Why Turkey? Because the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation are in Turkey. The seven churches. And Paul, when he traveled through Asia Minor, it says in your Bible, most of that was Turkey. So there's all sorts of cool archaeological sites in Turkey that tie to the Bible. I find Turkey just as fascinating as Israel for archaeology sites. It's amazing. So we're at this, this place. Keeps the light out of my eyes. kind of like it. We're at this place... And they said this was an ancient uh, dining hall. You know, this was a very wealthy family. And there were these really big, I'll just call them jugs, because I don't know what else to call them. Maybe they would hold like 30 gallons of water. I mean, they were big. And there were several of them lined up. And they said archaeologists and sociologists have been discussing this for many years trying to figure out what the jugs are for. Why would you have jugs like this? For whatever reason, they discounted wine, probably because we know what the wine jugs used to look like, and it wasn't them. Had they been Jewish homes, maybe it was for purification purposes, but it wouldn't have been in the dining room, and it wasn't a Jewish home. So after doing their research, this is the conclusion they came up with. They call this the vomitorium. So, you're at a Roman feast, you've eaten your full, you've drunk your full, but you want to have some more fun, so you go to the vomitorium, you give back everything you've borrowed... (laughs) And go back and drink and eat some more. I want you to understand, when I say they had a decadent feast, it was disgusting. And that gives us an idea of the disgustingness of her cup, which is even worse. These people weren't just about enjoying life. These people were abusing life and going too far, past the enjoyment to the disgusting phase. You know, I know a lot of people who like to drink... ...but I don't understand when they're vomiting at the toilet... ...how much they like drinking. I just don't get it. Are you having fun now? No, but I'll do it again tomorrow. I don't understand that. This was the day-to-day activity. So, I'll continue from the article. The most ornate silver cups were decorated with reliefs... ...which frequently depict naturalistic flora, animals erotic scenes and imagery associated with Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, intoxication, and revelry, and sex. Erotic scenes. See this woman, this harlot holding her cup? You can see why I saw the tie-in. The Roman banquet was not merely a meal, but rather a calculated underline a calculated, my underline, a calculated spectacle of display that was intended to demonstrate the host's wealth, status, and sophistication to his guests. Preferably, not a good word, because it's not strong enough, preferably, preferably outdoing at the same time the lavish banquets of his elite friends and colleagues. Imagine you're inviting people over to your house So you can show them how superior to them you are. And make them feel bad about it. That would give you the idea of this feast. Now you've been invited. Now you've got to outdo them. So then you have a feast. And you invite them over. Maybe they had a bronze cup. You have silver. So now they, you know, they mortgage their house so they can have gold. You serve peacocks. They're going to serve, you know, something even more extravagant. And on and on and on it goes. Status was extremely important in first century Israel and Rome. The worst thing that could happen is you could be brought down socially. It's humiliating. You wouldn't want it. So they did everything within their power to show how awesome they thought they were. Ninth descriptor, verse 6. I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So as you know, in these banquets, they got drunk, they vomited, they got drunk, they vomited. That's how it was. This woman's drunk too. But she's drunk with the blood of martyrs. So it's not like she's just killing Christians and Jews. She is drunk in their blood. She is a massive murderer and persecutor. We've read and I've taught you about time martyrdom She's the source. She's the one doing it. Tenth descriptor, verse five. On her forehead, a name was written Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The fact that it says it's written on her forehead is just an Eastern or ancient way of saying, even a Roman way of saying, this identifies her. It's her character. So it's on her forehead. It's what she's made of. This is what she is. She's the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Is there a stronger word of disgust than abomination? I can't think of one. If there was, John probably would have used it. You know, on her forehead the name was written. Her followers, the beast's followers, are going to have something on their forehead. Six, six, six. And it says God marks his followers on their forehead too. So the idea is who owns you and what you're about. And this b- woman's all about nastiness. But we've got her name here. She's Mystery Babylon. I told you it was a city, not a literal woman. And now we know the name of the city. Possibly. There are two possibilities here. If there's a third, I don't know it, but there probably is. This is either Babylon Restored... Or the word Babylon is just um, a metaphor because she shares the attributes of Babylon, but she's not really Babylon. In Revelation chapter 11, Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. So we know it's Jerusalem, and yet she's called Sodom. We know it's Jerusalem, and yet she's called Egypt. So this city is called Babylon. Is it Babylon, or is she just being called Babylon? Can't say for sure. I'll go into some reasoning for me thinking it's actual Babylon in some coming lessons. But these are our two options. Literal Babylon or a nation that shares the attributes of Babylon. And again, in coming uh, lessons, we'll talk about those attributes. And I'll give you a big history on ancient Babylon. So you'll understand why this woman is called Babylon. Whether she is or she isn't, the title fits. Based on what we know of ancient Babylon. So that history will come at another lesson, but I do want to just give you a little taste so you know what's going on here. Uh, Babylon was the world's first evil empire. In fact, it was the world's first empire, and it was evil. It was the source of the first worldwide false religion. Spiritual harlotry on the national scale started at Babylon. You might know it better as Babel. Babel slash Babylon continued to be the location of God's enemies, idolatry, and false religion for centuries. So, whether this new mystery Babylon is literal Babylon or not, we know that, like the original Babylon, she's the primary source of all that is vile during the tribulation period. Our 11th descriptor, verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Again, let's make it modern. That's the symbol for the United Nations. If this happened in modern society, that might be her symbol. She's a great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. She influences cities and nations and people. And later on, and we'll see this in chapter 18, she's extremely wealthy. She's the world's power. She's wealthy she's influential, and does lots of evil. This has caused a lot of people to think that maybe Babylon is the United States of America. I don't think so. I think we are, you know, a very ethnocentric people. must be us. Everything's about us. I mean, it could be, but I don't think it is. We have done, I mean, we are very wealthy. We are very influential, and we are and have been a world superpower. But on the blip of history, we, 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 we're not even on the scale. Could we be? I suppose we could be. But I don't think we are. By the way, talking about exporting evil, um, I see Obama is going on an overseas tour, and the people of Africa are telling him, don't come here to promote gay marriage. We don't want it here. So he's on a, a, a world tour to promote our enlightenment. A few years back, the United States was pressuring other nations, literally pressuring them to make abortion on demand part of their culture like we have it in ours. So you can see how Mystery Babylon, as the world's superpower, the world's wealthy power, can influence other nations. Either they admire her and want to do like her, or they force them to do like her, like we've done. It's not good. Twelfth descriptor, verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Remember, this isn't about the beast. That's next week. But this is a twelfth descriptor because she will be destroyed and burnt by fire. The nations that she has been influencing will turn on her and destroy her. This world superpower will be betrayed and destroyed utterly. There's a good chunk of chapter 18 that talks about her destruction. All right, let me wrap this all up for you. Revelation chapter 17, a woman rides the beast. You know, sometimes it looks like uh, evil's winning. It's a feast, it's a banquet, good times. Loose living, drunkenness, boastful wealth, harlotry, even the hating of those who follow God and keep his commandments. That's where we're heading right now as our nation. Sometimes it looks like evil is winning. Yet at the end, Babylon will be desolate and burnt with fire. Though we're not getting into chapter 18, I do want to read to you the end of this woman. Makes a nice conclusion to today's lesson. Revelation chapter 18, verse 5. Her sins are piled up as high as heaven, and God remembers her wicked ways. What nation is she or does she represent? Babel, Babylon. Notice it says her sins are piled up as high as heaven. You get the relation? Let's build a tower that reaches up to the heavens way back in Genesis. Now, here we are in the last book of the Bible towards the very end. We've built up a tower of sin that reaches up to the heavens. Treat her exactly as she has treated you. Pay her back double for all she has done. Fill her cup with a drink twice as strong as the drink she prepared for you. Give her as much suffering and grief as as the glory and luxury she gave herself. For she keeps telling herself, here I sit, a queen. I am no widow, I'll never know grief. And because of this, in one day, she will be struck with plagues, disease, grief, and famine. And she will be burned with fire, because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. When all is said and done, God wins. Evil will be vanquished. And God's people will be vindicated. And when Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, he meant it. We shall. We're not there yet. But I see it next door. We're heading there. I can see the stage set. I'm sure you can, too. Usually when I speak, I kind of figure I'm speaking to two types of people. Those who are sold out for Jesus and those who aren't. For most of you, I'm sure most of you are. But maybe you're all not. And for those of you online and those that are watching on TV, I don't know. So we don't have to wait till the world is back to a vomitorium. To make a decision to follow God. We get to choose now. Do we like all that is good and what he stands for? Or everything else? It says, the dress will be lifted up and I will show your nakedness. Right now it looks good, it looks fine, it looks fun. All these things we're calling sinful and people hate us for. But it's not fun. It's face and toilet. It's no good. It's end is only fire and destruction. It's a lie. You know, Satan's very smart. He's smarter than us. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want. But everybody in this room can be bamboozled. I could do a magic trick right now, and it would freak you out. I've done them. And I'm not even a good magician. How'd you do that? You're just wise enough to know it wasn't superpower. It was a trick. But for the life of you, you can't figure out the trick. I've seen some tricks on TV. I just scratched my head. How did he do that? It's brilliant. Well, not only can we be bamboozled with our eyes and our mind and our senses, but we can be sold a bill of goods. People buy into crazy investments. They buy into crazy religions or weird thoughts in their religion. People, we're gullible. We can be fooled and manipulated. Satan's a lot better than anybody who's ever tricked you before. He knows what he's about. He doesn't run around with horns and a pitchfork. You know who he was, he'd run away, you'd run away. He makes it look good. He's slick. He's handsome. He's in a suit and a tie. The Bible says he can transform himself into an angel of light. So when I tell you the things that the Bible calls wrong, that the world right now is calling good, it's, it's a ruse. It's smoke and mirrors. It's a shell game. One day the dress is coming up and everybody's going to see. It's a lie. We don't have to wait to be embarrassed, fooled, deceived. Nobody wants to sit in hell and say, dang, I guess I was wrong. We can think about it now. We can choose to follow Jesus today. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, Jesus died for our sins, and he rose on the third day. He wants us to trust him, follow him, believe in him, give up our sin, which is not good for us anyway, and follow him. If you're willing to make a commitment to follow Jesus, you're in. The good news in this book is for you. The bad news is not for you. If you'd like more information or you're considering following Jesus and haven't made that decision yet, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. One of the pastors or the deacons or just one of our members would love to talk to you about Jesus, what it means to follow him. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, there are dark days ahead, But I'm thankful that it all ends well. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And I pray that, you know, as we wait, as we watch the news and it discourages us, as our brothers and sisters get persecuted for standing for righteousness' sake, that we wouldn't lose hope, that we'd look up knowing that our redemption is near. I just pray, God, that for those of us who who love Jesus... That you would help us to be pleasing to him, to be strong, to be loving and gentle and forgiving and doers of good deeds. We do those things, Lord, but we can do more. Help us to do more. Help us to be the kind of people that nobody can say anything wicked about us because we just treat everybody well. Lord, we're here for a purpose. Please don't let us waste our time. Please don't let us waste your time and your sacrifice. Maximize our potential for your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.